recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christoginia Saturdays. Today is Saturday, August 31st, 2013. The year is two-thirds gone. Where does the time go? I never feel like we, we get enough accomplished. Tonight we're going to discuss the Canaanite woman, the biblical perspective. Before we start, I'd like to say a few things. I apologize for the technical problems I had last night um, in getting the program started. It, it's whenever I move to new servers, it, it, it presents me with a whole bunch of new challenges. I'm having one last problem, and that is that before the program began tonight, Shoutcast would not let me make my streams public, which is odd, and it's never happened before. Um, I have had, uh, I always mixed them up, public and private streams on, on um, my radio programs. I've always had at least the top two streams public. Tonight it wouldn't let me make any of my streams public, so you may not be able to pick them up in Winamp unless you have them saved as favorites, and then I think Winamp may work. I'm not positive. I can't take time out from my own program to go try it, right? I was listening to um, Christogenia Internet Streaming Radio and, and the reruns I played this morning on Winamp. If you have a cell phone, a new cell phone, the new Android cell phones and some of the new Macintosh cell phones, Apple I should call them, right? The, the iPod, iPads and, and iPhones, they don't support Flash, now, I'm looking into a JavaScript HTML5 Flash player for Christogenia to get rid of the old, well, audio player, stream player for Christogenia to get rid of the old Flash players. But um, that, 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 too, is a technical challenge, and it's going to I'm going to have to do a lot of research to find one that works and, and meets my needs. The, um, the best way to listen to Christogenia radio streams is with Winamp on your Android cell phone. Winamp is free for Android cell phones, and, and it, works pretty, it, it works pretty well, and I don't have the problem. I mean, I could listen for hours. Uh, not that I want to listen to myself for hours, but I don't have the problem that the Flash players do on the websites with dropping the stream every so often, which requires either choosing another stream or, or refreshing the page, which is a, a major inconvenience, especially during a live program. So our technology will continue and improve. It's a one-man operation, and it's just a matter of time. I have to split my time between, um, well, well the, the tech work I have to do to make sure my sites stay up, make sure they don't get hacked, make sure they're running efficiently, and, and, and improving on the websites and, and the servers and, and those situations and actually producing content, which is really what I'd rather be doing. So please be patient, and, and as time proceeds, we will improve. Tonight we're going to discuss the Canaanite woman, the biblical perspective, because there is a lot of confusion over the Canaanite woman and some people would like to interpret the incident where Yahshua Christ heals the daughter of the Canaanite woman. They want to interpret that from their own emotions, from their own conjecture, from their own suppositions, but not from Scripture. Tonight we are going to 
present the incident in its historical context and the cultural context of the first century, but we are going to interpret the reasons why Yahshua Christ healed the Canaanite woman's daughter from Scripture, not from conjecture. Once again, in order to assist me in this endeavor, is Sword Brethren. Hello, Brian. Hello. Thank you for having me here. How are you tonight? Wonderful. Praise Yahweh. Absolutely. Do you have any opening remarks? Well, this paper, of course, it's been a long time coming. We've needed to get to this point. I'm, I'm glad you've written this. I'm glad we're here tonight to do this program since there are some clowns out there that want to grab Matthew 15 and they just want to run and make an entire church based around the idea that our sole purpose in life is to bless the other races because they ask for a blessing, they're supposed to get it. Well, well, this paper, I actually wrote this paper several years ago, and I've expanded it. I expanded on, on the, um, the cultural context in my Matthew and Mark presentations two years ago, but I never offered the pointed conclusion that I'm going to offer tonight, and, and it's directly from Scripture. I, I mean, Clifton Emheiser pointed the right way in, in that area um, six, seven years ago, but I've taken my older Don't Be Confused About the Canaanite Woman essay, and I've actually updated it, incorporated information that I included in my gospel presentations, and, and written a stronger conclusion. And it's based on Scripture. It's not based on conjecture. So, so that's the difference between um, my own approach to biblical exegesis and, and the approach of those in the universalist Jewish quarter of Christian identity. Right, and just because something's in the Bible, the words of the Assyrian king in Jonah, I believe it's 3.8, the words of the Canaanite woman, it doesn't mean it's gospel. Well, well you know, whenever anything's spoken in the Bible... We have to be very careful building doctrine on it and gauge what's being spoken according to who's doing the speaking, who's being spoken to, in what context is, are the words being spoken, and, and, and we have to follow through with that context and, and, and not omit any of it in order to gain a proper understanding of Scripture. Look at we, what it's being said. Uh, well, well, we do not take the words of Cain, am I to be my brother's keeper, and make his Christian doctrine out of that. So we do not take the words of the king of, king of Assyria and make Christian doctrine out of that. They're the words of the king of Assyria, which were quoted by Jonah, but they're not the words of God. Right, so if Jezebel calls on her wicked husband Ahab to worship Baal, you know, come let us serve Baal. Does that mean, oh, it's in the Bible, we, we have to go serve Baal? Well, well right, it's ridiculous. The, the words of the Canaanite woman, we don't make parables out of what the Canaanite woman said and build doctrine upon them, as, as some fools in Christian identity endeavor to do. And, and, and by doing so, they're endeavoring to steer identity Christians into universalism and down the road to hell. The Canaanite woman, the biblical perspective. It seems that there has long been some degree of confusion in regard to the healing of a Canaanite woman's daughter by Yahshua Christ. 
an event described at Matthew 15, chapter 15, verses 21 through 28, and Mark chapter 7, verses 24 through 30, and especially among Israel identity adherents. Uh, of course, the Judeo-Christians are oblivious to, to the, um, the meanings and arguments be, uh, surrounding the entire incident. Why did Christ heal the daughter of a Canaanite? Was she really a Canaanite? In order to, to atop this, in order to approach this topic um, completely and legitimately, we're going to have to build all this foundation. We're going to have to um, lay out the groundwork. While the descriptions of the event are often abused by the promoters of universalism, they actually refute universalism. Yet those who understand the Old Testament and the curses against the Canaanites are left to wonder just how and why Yahshua Christ had shown mercy toward this particular woman. And this issue has been the cause for much debate. This short presentation shall endeavor to clear up any confusion surrounding this event. First, it must be noted that the accounts of this event provided by Matthew and Mark differ significantly. It must be understood that no gospel account by itself can be regarded as a full and complete record of any particular event. That's why we have four gospels. We have four witnesses. We have four different perspectives of many of the same events or at least in, in even more cases, we have three of those four. Each writer witnessed or recorded from witnesses all or parts of an event seen from a different perspective, writing down those portions of the event which were notable as they were remembered. Therefore, the events can't be seen to conflict with one another. Rather, piecing the accounts together we can create a more complete picture of the event as a whole, and, and we should bear that in mind when examining any of the events described in Scripture, where they're described in more than one gospel, that there are differences in those events because there are different perspectives, because different men witnessed different parts of the event and either didn't witness or didn't bother to record because they didn't feel they were important enough to the other parts of the event. The Canaanite woman is identified in Mark's Gospel as a Greek, a Syrophoenician by nation in the King James Version translation. The word rendered nation is the Greek word genos, Strong's number 1085, and it is more properly rendered as race. The ninth edition of the Dell and Scott Greek-English lexicon defines genos primarily as a race, a stock, or a kindred, generally a race of people or beings. Newer translations render the term in this passage as birth. However, I must interpret genos as a race here, since Mark could hardly have known where the woman was born or who her parents were. And because Syrophoenicia was never a nation at any time. For the term is only a geographical description, even though it is not found in secular Greek writings until Lucian wrote circa 160 AD. 
Strabo, in his description of Syria, notes that some writers divide Syria as a whole into Colo-Syrians and Syrians and Phoenicians and say that four tribes are mixed up with these, namely Judeans, Edomians, Gazaeans, people from Gaza, and Azodians, people from Azotus, and that they were partly farmers as the Syrians and the Colo-Syrians and partly, or I should say, Coilo-Syrians, and partly merchants as the Phoenicians. That's Strabo's Geography, Book 16, Chapter 2, Paragraph 2. And it can be shown that in Strabo's time, which was circa 64 B.C. to 25 A.D., when he's believed to have died, some of these terms had a quite different meaning than they had in more ancient times relative to Strabo. Mark, possibly being somewhat Hellenized, a somewhat Hellenized Judean, even his name is a Greek name, it's not a Judean name, and ostensibly he was writing in Greek for a Greco-Roman audience. Mark identifies this woman by Greek standards as a Greek by language and custom as opposed to the many Judeans and Edomites who resisted Greek customs, as did other peoples of the Near East. And Mark identifies her as a Greek by language and custom, but as a Syro-Phoenician by race. Here Mark seems to be telling us that the woman belonged to one of those tribes which were native to Syrian Phoenicia. And, and let me say, and I've said this before, that the word Syria and the word for the city Tyre. Both of those words come from the same Hebrew word, and it's spelled T-S-O-R when it's transliterated into English. So we have that T-S-O-R, and, and the Greeks made two words out of that, Syria to define the region, and or, or Soros, S-U-R-O-S, and Taurus, T-U-R-O-S, or what we call Tyre, to identify the city. So both of those same terms really come from the same Greek word. Mark seems to be telling us that the woman belonged to one of those tribes native to Syrian Phoenicia rather than being a Greek or a Roman inhabitant of Phoenicia. For there were many Greek and Roman colonists in the Near East at this time. There were large Greek cities in, in Judea inhabited solely by Greeks, cities like Sephoris. Ancient Palestine was just as confused concerning race and nationality as New York and many other major cities are today. Mark was doing the best he could to describe this woman with terms used by the Greeks of his time. He would have identified the woman as a Greek, a Roman, an Aramean, or Syrian, an Edomite, or a Judean by race, if such had been the case which is the reason for Mark's distinction, because such was not the case. The Greek word for Greek is actually Hellene, and its use here by Mark must be understood in its historical context. Hellene was never used to define, the word Hellene was never used to define any specific tribe, nation, or kingdom. Rather, the term Hellene came to be used among the tribes of the region and islands about the Asian or around the Asian 
who came to use a similar language and customs, namely the Ionians, the Danans, the Dorians, the Pelasgians. They were known collectively as Hellenes, not by race, but by language and customs. Later, there were subdivisions of these, such as the Boeotians, the Macedonians, the Argives, and on and on. Those of other tribes, such as the Phoenician colonists of Caria, of Thebes, of Thessaly, adopting the language, were also later subsumed into the Hellenic culture, becoming known as Greeks. But it was a cultural identification. It was not a tribal identification. Those peoples of other tongues outside the culture, whether or not they were just as civilized, and often they were described as being quite civilized, especially people like the Persians, they were labeled by the Greeks as barbarians. It must be remembered, however, that at this early time, all of these people were of white Adamic stock, although there were always some pairs mixed in among the wheat. Even later, with the rise of the Hellenistic period, after Alexander the Macedonian had conquered most of the Adamic world, or the Oikumene, people from many other tribes having adopted the same language and customs readily became known as Greeks. And that's what we have here with the Canaanite woman from Mark's perspective, from the perspective from which Mark is writing. And it can be established in his, in his gospel that he's actually writing for a Roman audience in the Greek language. And, and his gospel reveals that by the many Latin words that he used. And, and, and Mark was a Hebrew by race, and that's revealed by the many Hebraisms in his gospel. But he also used many Latin words, especially with units of measure and with coins and with terms related to governance and that demonstrates that he was probably writing, being a Hebrew by race, and writing in the Greek language for a Roman audience. And that perspective of Mark's gospel and, and the way it's constructed agrees with testimonies by all the early Christian writers that basically state the same thing. So Mark was identifying this woman as Greeks would understand and identify her. Well, our race always seems to have problems with geography versus nationality versus ethnicity slash race. Well, well, absolutely. And, 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 and um, Clifton and I did a program on that a few years ago, genealogy or geography, where we tried to address that problem, and, and not that we could correct it. Of course, we can't correct it. It's a 4,000-year-old it's a problem. But we just tried to illustrate the extent to which the problem exists. Right. A, a white man born in Angola or Namibia or South Africa is still a white man. Right. Now, on the other hand, on the other hand, Matthew... Matthew was a tax collector. He may have been a Levite by tribe. I can't prove it, but, but, but there is circumstantial evidence which points in that direction. Matthew was a tax collector, but he was certainly a Hebrew, even his name is Hebrew, who was seemingly much more aware of the woman's racial origin from a Hebrew perspective. And he properly identifies the woman as a Canaanite by the actual 
tribe or tribes of her lineage. While Matthew was also writing in Greek, he must have used this ancient term. In the Gospel times, in, in, in the first century, the word Canaanite had long fallen into disuse. Matthew must have used this ancient term with a specific purpose because the name Canaanite was virtually unknown to the secular Greek writers of his time. The Greek historians and geographers did not use the term. The term would probably have faded into oblivion if it were not for the scriptures, aside from some modern archaeological discoveries. The Greeks were much more apt to label foreign peoples by Greek geographical names rather than by their own ancient tribal names, as we even find occurring at times in the Old Testament. So, Phil, in secular writings. You're saying that the Greeks would say anyone from Persia, regardless of whether they're a Persian or a Jew or some Mongol. Well, okay. They were Persians. That They were Persians. The Greeks would identify them by geography, by race, by custom, a combination of the things. But, but they didn't really care about the race of other peoples and, and foreign peoples as much as they cared about their own, right? Right. I mean, the Greeks would make a, a point. He's, he's a Theban. He's a Spartan. He's an Athenian, wouldn't they? Right. And, and that's people, you know, they were familiar with the history of all those peoples and, and the outsiders. They weren't as familiar with the history. And, and they consistently mislabeled outsiders or, or, or labeled them according to their own um, perceptions and, and what they wanted to call those people. And, and we do the same things in modern times. Yet, you know, the English under the empire had names for people in foreign lands that, that those people never called themselves, and, and that happens all the time. Look at the Germans never call themselves Germans, do they? They call themselves Deutsch. I, I mean, there's a modern example, which is quite exemplary. Yet the name Germania has been around from, from the first century, B.C. The Greeks were much more apt to label foreign peoples by Greek geographical terms rather than by their own ancient tribal names, as we even find that occurring sometimes in the Old Testament. And in the secular writings of the peoples of the Levant, they are named in the manner seen in the citation provided by Strabo earlier, that they, they were um, Syrians, and they recognized the Dumians and Judeans, and, and Syrians was a very general term at that time, and Phoenicians, and Phoenician, Phoenicia the way the Greeks used it in the Hellenistic period was strictly as a geographical term, and anybody who happened to live in the region, whether he be Judean, Aramean, or, or um, Canaanite, was basically a Phoenician. So, so it, it, it was really a geographical term, and, and it came to be a label for the people there long after the original Phoenicians were taken away by the Assyrians, and, and they were the children of Israel. So, so there's, there's, um, the, the way Greeks named people and the way Bi the Bible and the ancient Hebrews named people are, are, are really not the same, and they're not consistent. In secular writings, the peoples of the Levant are named in the manner seen in the citation from Strabo, which we provided earlier here. Surely the woman of this event, which is described here, was indeed a Canaanite, 
Matthew could not have used such a term, the term which was obscured to the Greeks, if she were not an actual Canaanite. In other words, Matthew wouldn't be calling this woman a Canaanite because, so that Greeks could understand her, because the Greeks did not use the word Canaanite. They didn't have it in their vocabulary. So Matthew must have been calling her a Canaanite in order to identify her from the Hebrew tribal perspective, which would more accurately identify the people of the region because the Hebrews were much more familiar with the people of the region from their history, where the various tribes of these peoples really didn't play in early Greek history, and the Greeks wouldn't have been as familiar with them. In Matthew's account of the incident, the Canaanite woman, and by Matthew's use of the word, we can be certain she's a Canaanite. The Canaanite woman accosted Yahshua, and he ignored her. His disciples, evidently having failed to discourage the woman, became annoyed with her and asked Yahshua to send her away. Yet, he never admonished them for that behavior. Well, you know, Phil, in a recent paper you might be familiar with called Crumbs, the character who wrote this paper said that Yeshua could have just told her to go the hell, and he could have been rude to her. And That's the exact phrase he used. Yeshua could have told her, go the hell, but instead he chose to heal her daughter because she asked in good faith. Well, well right, and, and we'll get to that point later. But you, you made a point there. That he never admonished his apostles saying, you know, how dare you tell me to send her away. Well, well, right. He never admonished them because they evidently fully expected him to send her away. Because this is hardly, uh, I mean, they wanted him to get rid of her because they couldn't get rid of her. And, and this is hardly any way to treat a prospective Christian, right? And, and one may think, and this situation is only understood once one realizes that such a prospect simply did not exist, that a woman never could be a Christian. She could never be considered to be a Christian. So there must be some other reason why Christ didn't send her away and why he discoursed with her, and we'll find that reason. This can be compared to the reception which many others, being Israelites, had received. Uh, I mean, there are countless examples in the Scripture of men received by the apostles very kindly and Christ accepting them and Christ saying, follow me and, and, and let them becoming disciples. I mean, the, the Bible is replete with examples. Is John 1.47, Christ saying of Nathaniel, behold an Israelite in whom there is no guile. It is not merely because the Canaanite woman was not a Judean Israelite that she received such treatment. Contrast the reception which she received to that of the Roman centurion described in Matthew chapter 8, who, received, who, who had a very good reception, and he wasn't a Judean Israelite, and he was received very kindly. And his, and, and his servant was healed at his request. While the same event is described somewhat differently in Luke chapter 7, nevertheless the effect is the same. The Romans were in fact lost Israelites. They could be prospective Christians. They were descended from a portion of Judah which emigrated to Europe at a very early time. 
Paul knew this. It's evident throughout the epistles addressed to them. So the Roman centurion, when he um, accosted Christ and, and the apostles and begged for help, he was, re he, he was treated quite differently than the Canaanite woman who the apostles overtly attempted to dispose of. They just wanted to get rid of her. They didn't want anything to do with her. <clears throat> In Matthew 15, 24, Christ repeats his very commission in response to the Canaanite woman's plea. The commission is repeated throughout the New Testament, albeit in different words. I mean, it's all over the New Testament that the New Testament and, and the mission of Christ is strictly for the lost sheep or the children of the house of Israel. He told her, I am sent not but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He didn't say, I am come for the Mestizos, the Mongrels, the Arabs, the Turks, and let's well, work right. together and go get Jose and we'll work together, and this is in the Bible. Well, well, you know, this, this the, the, um, the Novemberites in the Jewish quarter of Christian identity, they, they want to take this one incident with the Canaanite woman and, and have it legitimized, basically, a, a watered-down form of universalism, but it's still universalism. There's no doubt. It's absolutely clear in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, as Christ says here, that he came only for the lost sheep of the house of Israel, those ancient Old Testament Israelites who from the days of the judges unto the Assyrian and Babylonian deportations had been immigrating into Europe and who eventually formed the Christian nations of the medieval period, the white races of today. As Paul explains to the Ephesians, lost Israel having been alienated from Yahshua, from Yahweh, until his redemptive sacrifice on the cross, his earthly ministry remained among the Judean Israelites, those who retained their relationship with him through the Old Covenant. That's what the remnant in Judea was all about. This is the very theme of Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. So while Yahshua informs the Canaanite woman that he was only sent for the sheep, who are exclusively the children of Israel, and that's identified throughout the Old Testament, Jeremiah chapter 23, Ezekiel chapter 24, several times in the Psalms. He then informs her that it is not proper to take the bread of the children, which is his favor, he's the bread of life, right, and throw it to the dogs, by which he is effectively calling the Canaanite woman a dog. Well, the term dog is often used derisively of people in Scripture. One example where it stands out is where it is used in the 22nd Psalm, a messianic prophecy foreseeing the crucifixion of Christ where it says, For dogs have compassed me, the assembly of the wicked have enclosed me, they pierced my hands and my feet, deliver my soul from the sword, my darling from the power of the dog. Psalm 22. Knowing that it is the Edomite Canaanite leaders of Judea who were primarily responsible for the crucifixion. Those who claim to be Judeans but are not. The dog people are brought to light in this statement which Joshua makes to the Canaanite woman. Paul later warns about the dog people in his epistles, Philippians 3.2, as Joshua also had previously, Matthew 7.6. The woman was certainly not a dog merely because she was sinful. Christ professed often that he had come for sinners, Matthew 9, 
9 to 13 being an example. She was surely a Canaanite, and for that reason, she was a dog. She bore both the curses of Canaan and Cain. Well, it's her, her really interesting that the Canaanites are often compared to dogs, and it seems that we might get the word canine from Canaanite. You know, the dog is an animal that, if left to its own devices, will basically breed itself out of existence. You might have a, a purebred Doberman Pinscher or a Rottweiler with a pedigree, but it'll go out and it'll run on anything that moves, and if it's a female dog, it'll, you know, present for any dog that comes by, and it'll even mate with coyotes and wolves, and dogs, if left to their own devices, will just breed themselves basically out of existence. It'll be a mishmash hodgepodge, you'll have something that's a quarter coyote, a quarter alley dog, and half of whatever your purebred used to be. And, and the Jews in New York are doing the same thing, right? Right, they're the ultimate mongrelizers. Absolutely. When in ancient times the children of Israel had left Egypt and were presented with the land of Canaan, they were warned that if they did not drive out or destroy all of the Canaanites, then the Canaanites would become a source of great trouble to them. This is found in Numbers chapter 33 and Joshua chapter 23. Of course, the children of Israel did fail to drive out all of the Canaanites as we see it explained in Judges chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. All of this must have been foreseen by Yahweh. He is God. Of course, yet, as Paul explains in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, the mystery of iniquity had not been fully revealed in the Old Testament scriptures, many of which are also parables and difficult to understand. Yet, that of the wheat and the uh, I'm sorry, yet the mystery of iniquity is fully revealed in the gospel. For that reason, we are provided with such parables as that of the wheat and the tares, and the warning that both must grow together until the time of the end, which is the time of the harvest, Matthew 13. When the children of Israel failed to destroy the Canaanites from among them, they lost their commission to destroy the Canaanites. And they were therefore left to suffer at the hands of the Canaanites. Neither was it the purpose of Christ in his first advent in his earthly ministry to destroy the Canaanites. For there were many other Old Testament prophecies concerning them and concerning the ultimate destruction of all of the enemies of Yahweh God at the end of this age. Obadiah, Malachi 1, Zechariah 14, there will no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord. Matthew chapter 13, Revelation chapter 20, all point to that. Now, if Yahweh God made a statement that the Canaanites, because the children of Israel failed to destroy them, that the Canaanites would be pricks in their eyes and thorns in their sides, well, we will see that Christ's healing of the Canaanite woman was only in order to perpetuate that very statement so that it would always be valid. Aside from that, and we're going to lay that theme aside until the end of this presentation, 
Compassion for one's enemies is a noble trait. And the sign of humility, which any good king, general, or righteous nation should have, and God is always righteous. There was a custom in the ancient world that a defeated enemy or an accused wrongdoer or anyone else who may, may have fallen into disfavor, if he should prostrate himself before a general or a ruler and grasping the cloak of such a one, admit his fault and then beg for mercy or forgiveness, arousing the compassion of his master, the, the general or ruler who has defeated or subdued him, he would receive as much or at least be granted a lesser punishment than what was expected. In the same manner, a peasant or other common citizen would do likewise, seeking relief from some trouble or to be granted some other favor by a ruler. This custom was the custom of the suppliant. It was taken very seriously in the ancient world. The ancient histories are replete with examples of such incidents. And this account of the Canaanite woman falls into the same pattern. When a Canaanite woman admitted to Yahshua Christ that she was indeed a dog, while professing that he could indeed heal her daughter, she both recognized him as having been sent by Yahweh God as being who he said he was and what was spoken about him. And she also surrendered to the truth of the word. Having such a surrendered enemy making supplication before him, while at the same time that enemy was admitting not only his um, sovereignty, but also the truth of the word, Yahshua had no choice but to show mercy to her by all ancient customs. Since by his own word, the destruction of his enemies was still afar off, and since she volunteered such submission in supplication, as her statement demonstrates where she says, yet the dogs eat of the crumbs which fall from their master's table. By this act of mercy, Yahshua also fulfilled the truth of the scripture found in Proverbs chapter 16, verse 7. And I quote, When a man's ways please Yahweh, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Therefore, Yahshua, keeping his own word, had no choice but to grant this act of mercy to the Canaanite woman as an example of his own teaching. Here in the account of Christ and the Canaanite woman, we have a model of the suppliant recognizing and beseeching a powerful man. The concept of the suppliant was very important in the ancient world, and we in modern times have lost it in the mechanizations of bureaucracy. A suppliant, or a supplicant, as the word is sometimes spelled, is today in English merely one who makes a humble, earnest, and expectantly sincere plea for something from another. But in the ancient world, 
The idea had a strong religious connotation attached to it. Those who refused suppliance were seen as cruel, and they invited the wrath of the gods to the pagan Greeks, or the wrath of God upon themselves. Suppliants often acted in desperation. They took olive branches as a sign of their humble state, sometimes even wearing garments of mourning, throwing themselves at the feet of a ruler or a general, or even at the legs of an altar, often grasping the garment of one whom they sought favor from, they begged earnestly for mercy, the mercy that they wished to receive. The Greek tragic poets very often portrayed suppliance in their plays. Euripides wrote a play, Suppliant Women. Aeschylus likewise wrote one, Suppliant Maidens. Both of those stories are accounts of the Danans who had come from Egypt to Argos in ancient Greece, probably around the 16th century B.C. The opening line of Aeschylus' version from the Loeb Classical Library reads, and this is a chorus of Danan women doing the talking, and I quote, May Zeus, who guards suppliance of his grace, look upon our company that took ship and put to sea from the outmost land of fine sand at the outlets of the Nile. This is the story of the tribe of Dan moving from Egypt to Greece. You do understand that, I hope. The suppliant was often a subject of Greek poetry and of history, whether the suppliant be at the feet of a general or king, an ancient hero, or the altar of some pagan idol. From Plato, and much of Plato's philosophy comes straight from the Old Testament. From Plato, Laws, Book 5, on suppliance, and I quote, In his relations to strangers, a man should consider that a contract is a most holy thing, and that all concerns and wrongs of strangers are more directly dependent on the protection of God than wrongs done to citizens. For the stranger, having no kindred and friends, is more to be pitied by gods and men. Wherefore also, he who is most able to avenge him is most zealous in his cause, and he who is most able is the genius and the god of the stranger, small g god, who follow in the train of Zeus, the high god in the Greek pantheon, the god of strangers. And for this reason, he who has a spark of caution in him will do his best to pass through life without sinning against the stranger and of offenses committed, whether against strangers or fellow countrymen. That against suppliance is the greatest, for the God who witnessed to the agreement made with the suppliant becomes in a special manner the guardian of the sufferer, and he will certainly not suffer unavenged. Now, Plato's philosophy really is reminiscent of Exodus 22, verse 21, and I quote, Thou shalt neither vex a stranger nor oppress him, for ye were strangers in the land of Egypt. Knowing that many of the Greeks were indeed Israelites dispersed in antiquity, it is no marvel that such things became ingrained into their culture. Does this mean you're finally turned on to the philosophers? Well, well, no, not at all, because there's also a lot of humanist garbage mixed in with, with their philosophy. But Plato, it's very clear in Plato, and, and um, from, from 
what the ancient historians say of some of the philosophers whose works don't survive anymore, that the early philosophers that they certainly did have the Hebrew scriptures for their inspiration. From Livy, the, the ancient Roman historian, here we shall see some references shedding light on the ancient concept of the suppliant. I'll read from Livy's History of Rome, Book 2, Chapter 14, describing a war between Rome and the Etruscans. And I quote, By these means, the Etrurians, Etrurians, Etruscans, same thing, right? After having almost gained the victory, were surrounded and cut to pieces, a very small part of them, their general being lost and no place of safety nearer, made the best of their way to Rome without arms, and in their circumstances and appearance, merely like suppliants. There they were kindly received. These people had just been fighting against the Romans. They were kindly received and provided with lodgings. When their wounds were cured, some of them returned home and gave an account of the hospitality and kindness which they had received. A greater number remained at Rome, induced by the regard which they had contracted for their hosts and for the city. They had, they had ground allotted to them for building houses, which was afterwards called the Tuscan Street. Again, from Livy's History of Rome, Book 2, Chapter 14, of an event which took place during the Punic Wars, and I quote, Hippocrates and Epicides, knowing them by their standards and the fashion of their armor, advanced to them, holding out olive branches and other emblems of suppliance, and besought them to receive them into their ranks to protect them there, and not to betray them into the hands of the Syracusans, or, or Greeks on, in, of the city Syracuse in, in Sicily, by whom they themselves would be delivered up to the Romans to be murdered. The Cretans immediately, with one voice, bade them keep up their courage, for they should share every fortune with them. So we see defeated soldiers joining the Cretan army as suppliants and being welcomed into it and, and protected by it. From Livy's History of Rome, Book 45, Chapter 6, on the defeat of Perseus, the king of Macedon, in a final military defeat at the hands of the Romans, at which he took refuge in a temple on Samothrace. And he was attributed as having said, or, or it's described of him first, I should say. Then, after uttering many execrations against fortune and the gods to whom the temple belonged, for not affording aid to a suppliant, he, meaning Perseus, surrendered himself and his son to Nias Octavius. And, and that shows that he, he, was, he, he didn't get the mercy from the pagan idol, the god, which he thought he had coming, so he cursed the god for, for not affording aid to a suppliant. And yes, the Greeks were serious about their paganism. Finally, from Homer's Odyssey, Book 9, the hero Odysseus is addressing Alcanus, the king of the Phocians, on the legendary island of Scaria. And he is portrayed as having said, and I quote, We were frightened out of our senses by his loud voice and monstrous form, but I managed to say, We are Achaeans on our way home from Troy, 
But by the will of Jove and the stress of weather, we have been driven far out of our course. We are the people of Agamemnon, son of Atreus, who has won infinite renown throughout the whole world by sacking so great a city and killing so many people. We therefore humbly pray you to show us some hospitality and otherwise make us such presents as visitors may reasonably expect. May your excellent May your excellency fear the wrath of heaven, for we are your suppliants. And Job takes all respectable travelers under his protection, for he is the avenger of all suppliants and foreigners in distress. So it's just important to see that somebody making supplication, how the culture at the time esteemed those people and expected those whom they made supplication to, to grant mercy. And, and that was very ingrained into the ancient culture, there's no doubt. Once we understand the importance which was placed on such supplication in the ancient world, and the religious manner which was given to the treatment of strangers when filling the role of the supplicant, then we can begin to understand the exchange between Yahshua Christ and the Canaanite woman. But here it must be noted that Yahshua Christ had healed the daughter of a Canaanite woman in body only, for she requested that he would cast forth the devil out of her daughter, as it's worded in Mark 7.26. And he granted her request where he said, the devil is gone out of thy daughter, Mark 7.29. She having received nothing more than what she had desired. As Matthew attributes to him, as having said, be it unto thee as thou wilt, or as thou wishes, meaning that the devil is cast out of her daughter. That's the only thing she gets. Well, That's what she asked for. That's the mercy she was granted, that the devil would be cast out of her daughter. You know, it seems in most of the healings and the blessings, he says, your faith has made you whole, your faith has healed you, your faith has restored you. Remember when he encountered the blind man and the Pharisees and Sadducees, I think were sitting around asking, who was it that sinned that this man should be blind? Was it him or his parents? And he said, none. You know, there was no sin, but that the glory of God might be manifest through this man. There, there's no exchange like that. There's no conversation like that with this Canaanite woman. He doesn't say your faith has restored you. Well, well, not from not from that perspective, but he does marvel at her belief, and and I'll get into that in a few minutes, right? At the belief that the woman, the Canaanite woman, had when she admitted being a dog, and that word is translated faith in the King James version. Right, but, but if they want something, they'll say anything, won't they? Well, well, right, but it doesn't really mean faith as we view the word in, in, in the context of Christianity. And, and I'll discuss that momentarily. The bottom line in, in the healing of the woman's daughter is that when a veterinarian heals a dog, it can be restored into a whole dog, but it can't be restored into a sheep. It's still a dog. The woman's daughter was likewise healed bodily, but she was still a Canaanite. She was still a dog. She's not an Adamite. She doesn't have the Adamic spirit. She doesn't have eternal life granted to her. 
because she was healed in body. For one to be granted eternal life, Paul explains that the resurrection is through the Spirit. If the resurrection is through the Spirit and she has no spirit, she has nothing coming on the judgment day. She is not resurrected. She's not an Adamite. She doesn't have that Adamic spirit. She's a broken cistern in reality. She can't hold the spirit. The spirit which Adam had is handed down like Adam's image. It's handed down through the DNA when the children of Adam go forth and multiply. It's part of the genetic code passed on in the reproductive process. That's what Paul explains in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 44. He says, it is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, if there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Producing offspring of mixed races, one is hewing out, as Jeremiah 2.13 puts it, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Jude calls them clouds without water. They're products of fornication. They're race mixers. They're wells without water, as Peter identifies them in 2 Peter chapter 2. They're without water because they're devoid of the spirit of Yahweh. How useful would you say a broken cistern is? What, what can it do? What can it accomplish? Well, well right. No use at all. There's no, there's no fruit in a broken cistern. Well, it, when you it, have a broken you have a broken cistern and you throw it in a pile with regular cisterns, will, will any good come from that? Uh, if you try and glue a broken cistern back together, it's not going to end well, is it? Well, well, that, that's the analogy, right? It, it's, it's not good, right? It can't hold the spirit of God. The broken, genetic code, the broken genetic code creates broken cisterns or broken vessels that can't hold water. They can't hold the spirit of God. It's that simple. If you have a broken cistern and I say, well, I'm going to break three of my cisterns and I'll take pieces from, you know, the pile over here and we'll try and glue your cistern back together, that, that no, no good comes from that. So when somebody who's a self-styled identity, Israelite identity leader, says that it's in the Bible, we get this from the Bible, this is the will of God, that pure white people should mate with half-breeds to bring them back and to whiten them over three or four generations so they can have um, offspring fit for the kingdom, that's basically suggesting that we break more cisterns. Well, well, absolutely. That's an absolutely repulsive and disgusting thought. That, that's not Christianity. Well, that's bastard, not Mexico. Well, we're told that a bastard shall never enter into the congregation of Yahweh. So, so what good is it propagating bastards? Well, but, who would want to propagate bastards? It's the, it's, it's the doctrine of devils. Well, well if, if, if that's what Joe November said recently, I mean, I'm not familiar with it, but um, if that's what he said, well, that's evil. That's plain e evil. He's encouraging race mixing. Encouraging race mixing is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Right. He, he did recently say, you know, it's been discussed on the Christogenia Forum. People can go there for the quotes. He did recently say, too, that mongrel non-white genes will not be expressed after three or four generations, that if a mulatto mates with a pure white person and then the 75% um, are mates with a pure white person and this continues for three or four generations, all of the mongrel genes will be recessive and will no longer be expressed, which reveals he doesn't know anything about genetics either. In addition to he doesn't know anything about genetics and he doesn't know anything about cares. 
Right. So if you um, since we call those people tares, the tares sown in among the wheat look just like the wheat do until the time of the harvest, right? Right. We call them tares. We call mixed people that look like us. We call them tares. We don't encourage the creation of more tares. Well, Comparay and Swift would say tares, wouldn't they? Absolutely. If you asked Comparay, what would you call someone who's 98% white and 2% Jewish, and they look white, they usually act white, Comparay would say they're a tear. Absolutely. That, that's the nature of the tares. If you ask Swift... Cain uh, was the first tear, right? Cain was the first tear, and there's a whole line of tears after him. This, I mean, Christ did tell us in, the, in, in Matthew chapter 13 that this happened in the beginning, right? And, and there were plenty of tares in Jerusalem amongst the wheat whom Christ was addressing. We've always had the tares with us, and we always will, until Yahweh himself, as the parable says, sends his messengers and removes the tares from amongst the wheat and gathers them and burns them in the fire. Well, so the tares aren't going to be gathered and sent back to tare land? No, they're, they're not going back to tare land. Back to the Canaanite woman. That Yahshua Christ had in this one instance granted mercy to an enemy, which scripture shows that the Canaanites are does not give Israelite Christians an excuse to embrace other races into fellowship. The woman was told, after her daughter was healed, she was told, go thy way. She wasn't even told to repent. She wasn't told to sin no more. She was still a dog. Her daughter was still a dog, and they could not possibly be made into sheep. She was told, go thy way. That she could repent from sin would be just as ridiculous a notion as the idea that a literal dog could repent from a vicious act. Dogs don't repent. Animals don't repent. They have no guilt. He certainly wasn't told, come and follow me. Well, right. Absolutely. She was told, go thy way. Beat it, scram. You got what you asked for. Get out of here. She, neither she nor her daughter, were granted eternal life, and she could not have been expected to somehow have become a Christian. What the woman did receive was a crumb. It cost Yahshua Christ nothing to grant the woman's request. It was more expedient to grant the woman her wish. Tossing the dog a bone is a reward for her supplication and honesty, for the woman certainly realized that she was not one of the children. Imagining that Yahshua Christ intended to bring an alien into the covenant, which he made exclusively with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, is to imagine that he would commit an act of fraud. He didn't, use, he didn't intend for us to use this example as a device by which to bring or attempt to bring all the Canaanites into Christianity. That's not why this example is here, and we shall see that. Paul knew as much. And at Galatians 3.15, Paul explained that even a covenant between mere men, once confirmed, no one could change or add to. 
So in that chapter, Paul explains that the new covenant is made only for the anointed seed. And the King James has it as being Christ, but it actually refers to the anointed collectively as a group. Paul's distinguishing between the Israelites and the other lines descended from Abraham, such as the Edomites and the Ishmaelites. It was also expedient to grant the woman her wish because it helps to fulfill other scriptures and other promises which Yahweh our God had made and we shall discuss shortly. First, I'd like to talk about this word faith in Matthew fifteen twenty-eight. O woman, great is thy faith, right? And people would take that and, and, and insinuate that that faith could be correlated to Christian faith. And that's not what Christ is saying at all. That word is the Greek word pistis. It's Strong's number 4102. The Greek word pistis is simply and literally either trust, faith, or belief. It's the common Greek word which is used to describe the word belief. The woman admitted being a dog. And Christ said, Oh, great is thy belief. Because, I mean, that's... That, that's to, for the woman to um, admit being a dog and humble herself to that level is pretty astounding. She admitted that she was just a dog. She wasn't an Israelite. She was just a dog. She couldn't be one of the sheep. She was just a dog. And she admitted it. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. No doubt. And indeed they do. But that doesn't give them seats at the table. This word is used here without the Greek article. So it doesn't pertain to any particular faith. When an article appears with a Greek noun, it references a particular instance of that object. Where without the article, it has no special connotation at all. Oh, woman, great is your belief. But that doesn't tie that belief. Belief in, in what? Yeah, yeah, right. A belief in what? Is she believed she was a dog. So Christ commended her for that. There's no problem with that. That doesn't make her a Christian. That doesn't make her a, a follower of Yahweh. It just means that she admitted that she was a dog. And he commended her for that because... She was indeed a dog. He didn't say, oh, you're not a dog. You're not really a dog. You're a person. Come with me and I'll take care of you. No, that wasn't his attitude at all. He commended her for her admission that she was a dog because she was a dog. It's that simple. He only basically agreed with her and and. and commended her for recognizing the simple fact that she was a dog. So that word faith in Matthew fifteen twenty eight has absolutely no relation to the faith, 
which is the Christian faith. Paul defines the Christian faith. Paul defines the faith of Abraham in Abraham in Romans chapter 4, where he describes the faith of Abraham as the belief which Abraham had that Yahweh was telling him the truth that his seed would become many nations and inherit the world. That's the faith of Abraham as Paul of Tarsus describes it in Romans chapter 4, and that is the Christian faith, or at least a significant part of it, that we are the Christian identity faith is that we are indeed those offspring of Abraham who would become the heirs of the world, as promised to Abraham. That's a significant part of the Christian faith. Of course, there's a lot more to it having to do with the nature of Christ and and the reasons for redemption and the fact of redemption and a whole lot of other things. But the basic core of Christian identity faith and the faith the Christian should have is explained by Paul in Romans chapter 4. And if you don't fall into that category of being one of those people descended from Abraham's seed who became many nations, then you shouldn't be a Christian. Well, you know, the idea that because the dogs eat the crumbs from the master's table, that doesn't mean they now get to sit at the table and act as though they are the master's children. They're just eating crumbs that fall on the floor. If there's somebody living in the woods behind your house and they rifle through your garbage every now and then and pick a few things up here and there, that doesn't mean they get to come to the family reunion, and that doesn't mean they get to sit down at the reading of your will and say, well, I've been taking from his garbage, so put me in the will. I want to be an heir to, you know, the, um, the estate. Well, well, right. I mean, Christ commended the woman because she admitted she was a dog, because she was telling the truth. That's why he commended her, because she was a dog. She could never be a sheep. She could never get a spot at the table. Even the devils, James the Apostle says in his epistle, James 2.19, you believe that there's one God, you do well. The devils also believe, and they tremble. That does, because the devils believe, that doesn't make them Christians. The devils believe they, that, that, that there's one God. That doesn't make them Christians. Devils shall certainly not be saved. Many times during his ministry, even the demons recognized the Christ. The demon, legion told him who he was, that he was Christ, the Son of God. The demons told him over and over again. There's all sorts of accounts in Scripture of demons telling Christ that he was the Son of God. And, and they, they were afraid that he was going to torment them. They never expected salvation from them. The Canaanite woman's no different, except that she admitted that she was a dog, and, and for that reason she was granted her favor. Well, remember the, the adversary in the desert when he was fasting, the adversary that approached him and took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and said, you know, all these kingdoms and the power and the glory are delivered unto me, and to whomsoever I will I give them. And he obviously, this adversary obviously knew he was dealing with Christ, the Son of God. That doesn't mean the adversary is a Christian now. Right. The word of Yahweh insists that Israelite Christians seek to uphold the laws of Yahweh, which are written in their hearts. Jeremiah 31 Verse 33, Romans 2.15, Hebrews 8.10. 
The word of Yahweh insists that Israelite Christians oppose evil. Romans 12.9, Philippians 3.2, Ephesians 6.13, on and on and on. Yahweh God had separated the nations which descended from Adam, and therefore universalism and racial diversity are evil. The mixing of the races is fornication. When you race mix, you're fornicating. If Joseph November is advocating that mongrels be bred out by mixing with whites, he is advocating fornication. And he's also blaspheming the Holy Spirit. The race mixing is fornication is demonstrated in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 8, and in Jude, verse 7. He's blaspheming the Holy Spirit, and he's advocating fornication. The Bible calls that the way of Balaam, the way of Cain. That's what Joe November is advocating. Well, he's advocating turning the United States into Mexico and Brazil, where the Jesuits told the people who were arriving, you know, oh, there's um, half-breeds, Indians, mulattoes, but if you uh, mate with them in three or four generations, you know, they'll be uh, higher up in the caste, and they'll be brought back into the fold. Well, it's been absolutely clear to me ever since we split that he had universalist underpinnings, and that's why we split, but that the more pressure I put on him, the more he had to defend his positions, the more clear his universalism would become. And these statements that you're attributing to him recently, uh, I mean, I haven't heard them, right? So I'm saying that you're attributing these statements to him. That he, he's out of the closet. He's all the way out of the closet. He can't get back into the closet. He's a universalist. He's advocating mongrelization and further mongrelization as a cure for mongrelization. That's, not, that, that's crazy. Well, beyond that, he's not just a mere universalist. He's advocating miscegenation. He's an integrationist. He's advocating miscegenation and the destruction of whites. So he's basically a Jew. But I knew that. <laughs> well, do you want me to bring up what I found out about um, his little DNA quote? Can I bring that up? Oh, 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 I would first like to finish the presentation on the Canaanite woman, right? All right, sure. A true adherence to the word of Yahweh results in the sanctification of the obedient Israelite. Since the word of Yahweh insists that the Israelite separate himself from the other races, Paul explains that in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Even though the King James translators added the word sing to the text of 2 Corinthians 6.17, the unclean, who Paul tells us to come out from among, and he's only quoting Isaiah, the unclean are the non-Israelite peoples. The non-Israelite peoples were never cleansed by the blood of Christ. They can't be clean. Just as Christ told the Edomite Judas that he wasn't clean, he said, you were all clean except one. What which, and, and he was speaking about Judas. The them and the admonition from the, the admonition to come out from among them in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and in Isaiah, or I think it's Isaiah chapter 54, I'm not sure, they are the unclean people, non-Israelites. The cleansing on the cross of Christ was only a cleansing of Israel, and only Israel. And that's very clear, and that was a matter of prophecy. Ezekiel chapter 36 Jeremiah chapter 31, Jeremiah chapter 33, 8. It was a matter of prophecy 
that only Israel would be cleansed. And today, after the cross, it's a matter of fact. The other races were never cleansed by Yahweh, and they are the unclean of 2 Corinthians 6, who the Israelites are commanded to be separate from. So we're not to mongrelize to get rid of mongrels. I mean, that's absolutely ludicrous. Well, if I handed you a five-gallon can of water and I told you, you know, this is 95% water and 5% carbon tetrachloride, you wouldn't say, well, gee, I just need to pour this into a 55-gallon drum and water it down, <coughs> you know, to dilute the carbon tetrachloride. You just dump the whole thing out and write it off. Well, well, it seems to me that Joseph November has um, quite a few identity Christians listening to him. Pastor, well, so-called Pastor Visser is one of them, right? And um, several others in the, in the former, or, or I don't know, the state of Aryan nations. He has quite a few people still listening to him, and he's really only, he's mocking them. He's making fun of them. There's no doubt in my mind. The... Um, all of this leads to the greater reason as to why Christ healed the Canaanite woman's daughter. Why did he heal her daughter? Why did he, aside from the fact that she was a supplicant, aside from the fact that she was a suppliant expecting mercy when she agreed with him, and that the culture of the time insisted that he grant her mercy, aside from the proverb that a man who pleases Yahweh makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Aside from the fulfillment of that, why did Yahshua Christ heal the Canaanite woman's daughter? And if we want to properly identify that reason, we must resort to Scripture to do it, not to emotion, not to the logic of man, not to conjecture, as Joe November does in his Crumbs paper. We have to resort to scripture to identify the reason. For many years, identity Christians have wrestled with this, and I wrestled with it myself. Yet it is evident that Canaanites would not even be known to us from the New Testament period if it were not for Matthew's correct racial identification of this woman. With that identification, we know that the word of our God endures beyond the boundaries of the perceptions of man. When the children of Israel had failed to exterminate the Canaanite tribes in ancient times, they were warned that the Canaanites would be pricks in their eyes and thorns in their sides. From Numbers chapter 33, I will quote from verse 55, But if you will not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then it shall come to pass that those which you let remain of them shall be pricks in your eyes and thorns in your sides and shall vex you in the land wherein you dwell. The children of Israel did fail. And therefore Yahweh said to them, in response to their failure, the first passage being a warning if they did fail, in response to their failure, 
Yahweh said to them, as it is recorded in Joshua chapter 23, and I'll read verse 13, Know for a certainty that Yahweh your God will no more drive out any of these nations from before you, but they shall be snares and traps unto you and scourges in your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from off of this good land which Yahweh your God has given you. But well, we still haven't perished from off of that land. Again, it's recorded in Judges chapter 2, and I'll quote verse 3. Wherefore I also said, I will not drive them out from before you, but they shall be as thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare unto you. The Canaanite woman of the New Testament is certainly a thorn in our eyes and a prick in our sides today. And therefore, we see the perfection of the word of our God, that the word of our God still stands. Because Yahshua Christ, through this dog of bone, because Yahshua Christ healed the Canaanite woman's daughter, This promise of God was perpetuated that this Canaanite woman is a prick in the side of every identity Christian who cannot understand why he would do such a thing. And she is a thorn in the eye of all Christians who would embrace universalism because of this singular act of mercy. And with those and, and those with such thorns in their eyes, imagine Yahweh our God to be a hypocrite. Yet Yahweh does not change, because the day is indeed coming when there shall no longer be a Canaanite in the house of Yahweh of hosts. Zechariah will be fulfilled. The entire earth is his footstool. The entire universe is his house. Do not imagine a crumb to lead to any ultimate mercy for the accursed Canaanites. If you use the account of the Canaanite woman to embrace any form of universalism, you indeed have pricks in your eyes. That's my conclusion. Well, you know, I'd like to bring up something from the paper you're familiar with the paper William Fink Race Trader? Well, of course. And the author of this paper, Joseph November, he writes, quote, his words, Another famous person in the H. Hapla group is, according to my DNA analysis, Marie Antoinette. This means that Eli James, Marie Antoinette, and Luke the Evangelist have a maternal ancestor in common. How many Jews can say that? That fine lady was most probably a Scythian Israelite or a Cimmerian Israelite. He really and said all that in that paper? I mean, I didn't read the paper. It's garbage. Yeah. I know where it is. It's nothing but slander. And, and that's the end of his little quote there that I wanted to read. And he, had, he supposedly had a DNA test done by um, 23andMe. And I'll, I'll take him at his word. Fine. He, he, he has an ancestor in common with Marie Antoinette. He's related to Marie Antoinette. Fine. He wants to claim that. I accept it. Now let's examine her ancestry. Marie Antoinette, her father, was Francis I of the Holy Roman Emperor, Empire, the consort to Empress Maria Theresa, 
And now let's look at Francis I and his background. His mother was Elizabeth Charlotte of Orleans. Elizabeth's father was Philip de France, Duke of Orleans. Philip's father was Louis XIII of France. Louis XIII's mother was Marie de Medici. So Marie Antoinette's great-great-great-grandmother was Marie de Medici, a Jewess. So fine, Eli's related to Marie Antoinette, and of course he's related to her great-great-great-grandmother well, as well. The bottom line is that even Joseph November's wives proved that he's a Jew. Right. So if he wants to claim he's related to Marie Antoinette, fine, I accept it. He's just, he's just admitted he's related to Marie de Medici as well. Well, well the man that's sitting on his program and responding to me by saying that that, that bastards can cure themselves by marrying more white people, and, and that that's what bastards have to do to, to get rid of their bastard genes is to marry more white people. Well, well, he's blaspheming the Holy Spirit. He is promoting fornication. He is promoting the creation of more bastards. If anybody in Christian identity doesn't see that he is an evil bastard himself, and they still want to give him credence and listen to him, they deserve the punishment which he gets. Well, because Paul explains in Romans, at the end of chapter 1, that not only they who do such things are worthy of death, but also they who approve of them who do such things. Now, Bill, if you were a bastard and you wanted access to white women in a patriot movement, wouldn't you put out the false damnable doctrine that they have a duty to mate with half-breeds and bastards to whiten them? Test every spirit to see whether it's from God. Or would a God, would Yahshua Christ promote the creation of more bastards as a solution to bastards? That's the Jewish agenda. That's the devil's agenda. And, and Joe November is promoting it. So we might do, well, we, we might have to do a, a different program than Shill 6 in response to that one. Well, it, it seems Shill 6 is going to be coming sooner rather than later, right? Within the next month, perhaps, Shill 6? Well, perhaps. Perhaps. I have to sit and evaluate the answer. I'm, I'm a busy guy. I, I, I just I spent nine days on, on vacation in Florida and did more work, I think, than... Well, when I got home that I did all of July, um, I can't catch a break, right? Recent declarations, though, apparently make it seem that you and Clifton will be departing into the um, everlasting hellfire in the lake of fire for your hatred of the other races and your hatred of God's creation and your hatred of fellow whites, while the miscegenators and their bastard children are judged by their works and they just go back to la-la land and have fun wherever they came from. But... Hybrids have well, well, then Clifton and I must be doing good work. If the enemies of God hate us, then, then we're doing a good thing. Well, we're doing a good deed. Well, where do well, hybrids go back to? Where is their homeland? Where were they created? It, it's, his entire theology is absolutely ridiculous. It's an insult to scripture, history, archaeology, and basic genetics. Well, anybody who listens to him is an insult to God. Now, that's the way it is. But they probably belong there, I'm sure. Right. Well, he's trying to make the kingdom safe for bastards. That's what he's doing. His son-in-law, right. His grandchildren, the grandchildren of his listeners. Right. But this, well, we'll discuss that when we do show six. But, but um, 
It, it's it's anybody should be able to see through that. Anybody should be able to read crumbs and see right through the 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 um the value of his argument in support of the Can in support of universalism built around the Canaanite woman. He keeps referring back to the same the, the same incident in order to um, promote his universalism. And the bottom line is that he and anybody who listens to him have pricks in their eyes and thorns in their sides because that's what the Canaanites are. And they still are to this day, even right. though most Canaanites have different names. I, I mean, all the Canaanites have different names. Today they're Arabs. Today they're um, that they're found in various places in Southern Europe, Western Europe, that they're Jews, they're Khazars, they're whatever. They, they have many different names, but they're still Canaanites in the eyes of God. And, and we can't embrace any of them. And if we attempt to use the Canaanite woman incident just to, to embrace universalism, but, well, that's the fulfillment of the Word of God. Right, and if we do that, we're doomed. So he wants to take one incident in Matthew 15, overthrow the entire Scripture and all the other Gospels based on a misunderstanding and a misinterpretation of one incident in Matthew 15. And my assertion is that one incident in Matthew 15 was designed so that the Canaanites would continue to be thorns in our sides and pricks in our eyes. And those who follow Joe November prove that, as do all universalists. Right, well, if the blind lead the blind, they're both going to the ditch. Absolutely. Although at this point, we can no longer grant that Mr. November is just mistaken, ignorant, or confused. He's deliberately trying to lead the assembly into a dead-end road. Absolutely. He deliberately tried to try to um, infiltrate and destroy identity Christianity. It didn't work. It didn't work. Not, not, not that um, the people in both of our circles are all Christian identity. That's certainly not the case. But he, he's been a politicker and a traveler for, for many years, and he, and he tries to associate himself with every assembly that'll, that'll give him the time of day, and I really believe that he's trying to set himself up as a Christian identity leader in order to lead Christian identity into perdition with mongrelization and the promotion of bastards and, and all of these universalist heresies that, 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 that he's dragged into it, as well as all the other sky-fi garbage and, and Ron Wyatt and Jordan Maxwell and... 2112 or 2012 and all that other garbage. That was 2013, Bill, or 2014, maybe 2015. I'm sure he'll have another date soon. He can't help himself. He's already denied that he said anything about 2012 and that he said we would have to wait and see. Well, well, it's sad, but now we have, I pray we have the truth of the Canaanite woman and the incident and the facts behind it and why... Yahshua Christ healed the Canaanite woman. And, and this paper will be updated on Christogenia and posted along with this podcast. Well, the fact that so many people believe his interpret well, I shouldn't say so many, the fact that dozens of people believe November's interpretation of Matthew 15, it's proof positive that that Canaanite woman is still a prick and a thorn today, even though she's long dead. Well, well that's my entire point, right? Exactly. And, and they're just not getting it. Either they don't get it or they don't want to get it. 
because well, well, they don't together because a lot of them have a have a horse and a lot of them have a pony in 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 the the, the manzer race, right? Right. Well, if your kids went off and became miscegenators and you have mongrel grandkids, the answer is to disown that branch of the family. Well, well my daughter. I disowned my daughter. I I disowned my daughter thirteen years ago. I disowned my daughter. I disowned my daughter. She's just about 30 years old. I disowned her when she was 17 because of her attitude and dating. And and I informed her that she was disowned and she was dead to me. Now, the difference between my daughter and Joseph November's daughter is this. He embraces his daughter to this day. He hasn't disowned her. His other daughter was the maid of honor at, at her sister's mixed-race marriage and she still lives in his home. He hasn't disowned her. She has friends who are non-whites. He hasn't disowned her. My daughter was raised while I was in prison by the New Jersey public school system. My daughter didn't have a chance in hell. Joseph November's daughters were raised, and they're not even 35 years old today, but they were supposedly raised by a man who's a Christian identity preacher for 35 years and who was with them every step of their, their walk through life. They're the product of an upbringing at the hands of Joseph November. So my daughter didn't have a chance in hell, but my daughter wasn't raised by me, according, you know, due to the unfortunate circumstances of my life. She was raised by the public school system, basically. So, so she rejected me in, in 1999, 2000, and, and I disowned her then. Well, Joe November's daughters supposedly, allegedly, had every benefit of being in, in a racially aware so-called pastor's home, right, and raised by him. And they're race mixers, and he hasn't disowned them. So what's the truth of that matter? Because it doesn't add up. It doesn't add up a bit. The only conclusion is he's a liar and he's lying about something or he's lying about everything. He's lying about everything. That's the conclusion. He's lying about everything. That's the only valid conclusion. He's not who and what he claims to be. He never has been. He's been playing roles in order to pervert and corrupt the truth. So Instead of Pastor Eli, he's Joe the actor. Absolutely. Well, well, I didn't want to make this program about him. I wanted to make this program about the Canaanite woman. But people must be warned, and that's the way it has to be. People must be warned. Don't let liars put pricks in your eyes and thorns in your sides, basically. We set out to talk solely about the Canaanite woman, and we wound up spending a little bit of time on the Canaanite man. Well, well, yeah, right. Okay, thank you for joining me tonight. I will be here on um next Saturday's program. We'll, we'll leave it open. We'll we'll discuss it during the week. What the content of the program is going to be. Um, next Friday I will be here with my Acts chapter thirteen presentation and commentary. I will resume that. And I may put together a point-by-point answer to his crumbs or answering the um, exterminationist Finkeheiser, Finkeholics part one and possibly part two because he really 
he hasn't raised any points. It's all emotionalism, and I think somebody might need to explicitly point that out. Right. I don't know if I'm going to waste my time listening. Okay, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me here. And thank you, everybody, for listening. And praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and not the God of the Canaanite woman. Yahweh bless. Good night.